Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest today is Perry Marshall. He's an author, speaker, engineer, and world-around business consultant in Chicago. With a decade of research, he brings fresh perspective to the 150-year-old evolution debate. Just like Bill Gates of Microsoft and the founders of Google revolutionized software and the internet through their status as outsiders, in his new book, Evolution 2.0, Breaking the Deadlock Between Darwin and Design, Perry seeks to harness a communication engineer's maverick perspective, revealing a century of unrecognized discoveries. Evolution 2.0 strives to resolve the conflict between Darwin and design, opening new avenues of research and raising tantalizing new questions. It's a really interesting book. We had a really great conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I give you Perry Marshall. Perry, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. We're going to have a blast today. We got a lot of crazy topics that we want to talk about, so can't wait to get into it. You are a guy that's an electrical engineer. You have written books on Ethernet cables, which is fascinating because it's the book you're writing, right? I didn't realize like how much money factory downtime costs if the system crashes. And I'm like, okay, oh. this is why books on Ethernet cables are very important. And we're both drinking water out of mason jars. So that's, uh, that's <laughs> a lot of uh, And so what, you've written a fascinating book, which I want to delve into in a minute, Evolution 2.0, Breaking the Deadlock between Darwin and design. I want to read that in that political ad voice, like breaking the deadlock. You know what I mean? It's, I love that <laughs> subtitle. Uh, it's like a kind of like exciting and sexy, but can you tell me, because you're the Google AdWords, Facebook guy, ads guy, you, like how do I get like 50,000 downloads on this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I really want to know. If you can tell me uh, that, I'll believe whatever you say about anything else. Well, make, make somebody really angry, right? If 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 you're if you're a shepherd boy named David and nobody knows who you are, if you kill Goliath, everybody will know who you are. Three thousand years later, um, <laughs> that's uh, that's that's the best that's the best publicity tip I can give you. Slay Goliath. All right, slay Goliath. So there's no algorithm I'm missing. I've just got to slay Goliath. Some smooth stones. Well, five smooth stones, and you're there. <laughs> Smooth. That's the algorithm. It's the smoothness. That's right. So you grew up in a religious home, right? You're, you're very yes, very religious, very conservative. Uh, my grandfather was a, was a Baptist member minister. My dad was a minister. Grew up in like super conservative end of Lincoln, Nebraska. Okay. So yeah, and uh, you know what? It was actually a very good upbringing. Um, a lot of people would trash that. I, I think I actually got I got the I got the Lincoln, Nebraska equivalent of the Jesuits or the or maybe the Hasidic Jews or something. You know, like really like rigorous. Uh, we think about stuff really hard. We study the stuff really hard. Um, and what what you usually get in in that kind of a thing is you get some really great strengths, but then you also get these weaknesses. And um and I would I would say it was it was a little weak in in historical sciences and and I think that you know that community that that end of the world has developed a fear of science that's unwarranted. Um and. I think I, I think the atheists have taken that and run with it. They've they've had a field day with it, and I really wanted to set the record straight. Um, but it it ended up not being the religious. My motivations ended up being less religious and more the fact that I'm an engineer. I what really drove me to write this book was that I, as an electrical engineer, as a very, very scientifically literate person, I was appalled at what you actually find if you go to the bookstore and buy a book about evolution. Uh, anywhere from a third to one-third to three-fourths of it is completely wrong. Um, and the stuff that they don't tell you is just bloody fascinating. And so, um, so I wrote Evolution 2.0, and and uh, it's it's been really interesting uh, since then to to interact with all kinds of people, from scientists to people like yourself to the regular guy in the street. So it's it's really I, I think people are going to enjoy listening to to this as it unfolds. I like to consider myself an irregular guy on the street. 
basically. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, it, it, it's interesting too because you said you talk about like historical sciences. I was uh, George Marsden, who's a pretty famous American religious historian, was in a pretty conservative. I know who that is. Yeah, right. I know his son. Yeah, he's I he's know his son. He's an amazing historian, and um, yes, one of the reasons he told a friend of mine that he didn't study biblical studies or theology is because he knew he couldn't be a good scholar in his tradition because basically you couldn't really follow the academic discipline where it was. But he says, if I'm, if I'm a historian, nobody really cares about what I read about George Whitfield. That doesn't mess with their theology. Either. <laughs> so I could be a top notch scholar. But if I really say what they're teaching me in biblical studies, that maybe all of the Pentateuch wasn't written by Moses or something like that, that, Oh no, you know, you can't teach that. Stuff. So, I mean, is that sort of what you're talking There's kind of, and you kind of talk about this, I, my sense in your, in your book, you, you, you sort of say that, that, that this happens on lots of, ends of the ideological spectrum, not just in religious and conservative circles, but also in secular absolutely, elite academic circles, that there are, every community has its dogmas, which which tell you what you can and can't doubt. Absolutely. In fact, the faster a guy is ready to jump down your throat about how religious dogma is silly, the faster he's probably shoving some other dogma down your throat even while he's he's talking to you about that i i think i think that the new atheists are the most dogmatic people on the planet um they're worse they're they're worse than the militant muslims actually um and and i know this from experience uh from interacting with people online um nobody nobody's puffed up with more dogmas than than the fanatical atheists you got to get some great trolls i would guess i mean i i would oh, guess you get absolutely. world world i mean world class trolls not just your average yeah yeah you're oh, talking yeah. like 2500 word posts and stuff like that like comments in your feed and stuff there's there's people that that that, that hate hate my guts but but yeah you uh, you know, every so look, everybody's got dogmas. It's it's just a question of whether you're conscious of them or not. Um, that's the question, and and whether you're willing to subject those dogmas to scrutiny. That's really what it is. And and so when I got sucked into this, I said, you know what? I'm going to follow the evidence where it leads. I I am going to chase this rabbit trail. I I'm scientifically educated. I know how to read a scientific paper. I know how to evaluate scientific data. I'm going to see where this goes. And I really had no idea where it was going to go. Um, is this going to make me an atheist? Is this going to make me an agnostic? Is, um, is evolution true? Is creation true? Like, I just don't know. But I'm going to follow this. And, you, you had and a brother, I, right, that almost that basically was a missionary, went to seminary, was a missionary. And some of the your journey in the beginnings of it into the stuff around evolution and, and its history and its development comes out of conversation when you're visiting him in China, right? And he's skept, he started reading stuff about the age of the earth, and he, he was plagued with skepticism. Yes, yeah, so, so Brian, um, Brian was even more conservative than me. And Brian went to a very conservative seminary and he got a degree in theology and and he came out and he ended up teaching English in China and being a missionary on the side for four years. And um, he's very, very smart. And what happened with him, and, and I would say, you know, he got a very good education as far as it went. Um, he, he, had a, he, he had a bachelor's degree in history, and then he got his theology degree. Um, but it was like the education that he got was this very tightly coiffed Excel spreadsheet of exact answers of this is, this is the Bible, and this is how we interpret it, and this is, this is, uh, this is how science works. And it's, it was, it was very rigid. It was very brittle. Well, he's in China and nobody can tell him what to think or they, they can't box him in. He's, he's not living in his evangelical little culture that he, that he was always in. And so he started to grow up, you know, he's in his late twenties, uh, I think. And and he's starting to question things and he's got access to the internet and off he goes exploring and he starts finding out like, Hey, wait a minute. The, the earth is not 6,000 years old. Like even if, you know, and, and what about this and what about that? And the whole thing kind of started to unravel. Now I, I had, um, embraced much more moderate views much sooner than that. And a lot of that didn't bother him. Like, 
yeah, no kidding. The earth isn't 6,000 years old. Like I'm, I'm glad you came around on that. Um, you know, not how, how did your path go differently than his? I mean, what, what was it that kind of, and what kind of church tradition do you find yourself in today? Well, so, so I, <laughs> so when, when we moved to Chicago, um, I, uh, we, we wanted to find a place where, you know, a faith community where we could be comfortable and, and we started visiting places and, and I went to Willow, one day we went and visited Willow Creek and Willow Creek is the biggest church in the Chicagoland area. And, um, at one time it might've been the biggest church in the country and they had kind of reinvented church. They really had, um, back in the eighties. And, um, and, and I went there and like, they had me at hello. They had really re like, they had taken the whole thing apart, put it back together, completely different way, completely different assumptions. They, 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 they made us like a lot of church, especially where I came from. It's like, you're either one of us or one of them. Mm -hmm. You're either going to heaven or you're going to hell. You're either, you know, with us or you're against us. And they would be there. It was very polarized. And what Willow Creek did was they made this middle space, um, that they called seeker. And if you're a seeker, then you have all the space in the world Mm -hmm. to explore, to ask questions, what, nobody's going to breathe down your neck. Nobody's going to like be nervous about you. Uh, nobody's going to be uncomfortable. You can participate in an awful lot of things. You can volunteer with stuff because we're comfortable on our skin and we like people and God loves people. So you just come and you be here and, and it worked. I mean, it was, it was popular. And, and within a year I found myself running this thing called a seeker small group. So every other week I would have this group and uh, uh, a half dozen people would come and it was like this Bible study for non-Christians. Like the whole premise was you do not necessarily agree with all this stuff, but like come and let's, let's discuss whatever this stuff is that you don't agree with. And it was scary, it was risky, and it was thrilling. I mean, I absolutely loved it. I loved the, it. Was, it was a demilitarized zone is what it was. And and I want to circle back to that DMZ idea because it comes in really handy with the evolution stuff. And and so I I had done that um Willow Creek they would they would bring in they would bring in cosmologists and physicists and scientists and stuff like that. And they were really open to exploring stuff um and and so I was just I, I was I was in that vein. Um he was doing a whole lot less exploring except now he's doing a whole lot more. And 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 his his whole belief system just started unraveling and 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 we were were and are very close and we're exchanging emails and and stuff and finally uh, I'm on a trip I go to visit him in China and and this is this is turning into arguments and debates because he's really like throwing the whole thing out out the window and I think he's taking it too far um and and all of a sudden one day, you know, we're, we're, it's like argument number 136. And, and I go, Brian, Brian stops. Okay. Look at the hand at the end of your arm. Like this is a fine piece of engineering. You don't think this is a, like a random accident, do you? And he's like, hold on, <laughs> hang on, hang on, buddy. And, uh, and like, and now he was now, now he's doing that that deal too. It's like, oh, we don't need any designers. We don't need need any, any engineers. Um, and um, and I'm like, well, uh, you know, they never taught me Darwinian evolution in electrical engineering school. In fact, in five and a half years, it never came up. And I studied control systems and communication systems and the whole how do you optimize a, a not optimum system? Like this never even came up. So. Do the engineers know something the biologists don't? Do the biologists know something the engineers don't? I don't have a biology degree. I know how counterintuitive some things in science are. Like the deeper you go in science, the more weirder it all gets. So like, I don't know, maybe they are right. Well, let's just put it this way. I had no idea what I didn't know. And I had no idea what they're not telling most people. I mean, it's crazy, but, but we'll unpack it uh, as we go here because it's, it's really amazing. Now, let me ask you this. Like, let's say, uh, I'm thinking for people that 
that don't spend like uh, many of their waking hours, like you've done, pouring over not just scientific journals. I mean, you, you, you're like, hey, I'm an educated guy. I'm going to learn how to read back. And, it, and, and yeah, I mean, I, it's very interesting. Leslie Newbegin is the thinker I really like, was a missionary to India and wrote a lot of stuff about missiology and Western culture. Same thing. He would, he would spend time reading the real academic journals of science. And, um, but, you know, for people that, that have some kind of an armchair understanding of this, like if we we're going to land a paradigm, like, for, like on a spectrum, like one in the spectrum, right, we'd have young earth creationists. They're thinking God created the cosmos, every species on it, six days, you know, uh, the earth's a few thousand years old. Then maybe like a, a next point over, we could go right to left or left to right, would be old earth creationists, right? The science... Yep. Right. On the history of the cosmos, the earth is accepted. Um, God's still the creator of species or basic types, right? And then maybe towards the middle, you'd have like guided evolution. You'd have some people that say God has created the evolutionary universe, but intervenes at specific moments in time. DNA yeah. tweaking, apes becoming human, something like that, right? And then moving further along the scale, you'd maybe have like a fine-tuned universe belief that God created the universe, fine-tuned it for life, step back from then on, cosmic and biological evolution run its course. This is Bette Midler's kind of from a distance, right? <laughs> yes, um, yes. And then one more over would be chance and lawfulness, right? Like evolution is seen as a dual process of random chance and non-random processes, um, things mm -hmm. like selection, elimination, gravity, self-organization. And then on the furthest extreme, on the other extreme from the young earth creationists, we'd have something like chance alone, right? Everything has been, right. has come out as a result of chance. Um, and, and I've read people that saying actually, no Dar Darwinist thinks that. That's sort of like that's kind of the the creationist kind of straw man of the Darwinist. That this, yeah. So where where would you put yourself in that spectrum, or do I have to create a new a new a new type? <laughs> well, well, well. First of all, I'll commend I'll commend you for kind of uh, laying that out on that. That's that's a that's a nice useful spectrum. So so I so there's a there's a question that that is implicit in all this which is well how involved is god in the universe and my life okay and i and i think a lot of times like if if i if i'm talking to a young earth creationists and and i say they hey, build you know, a, they build a hell of a theme park those people <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's why that view is so popular they make a nice theme park. Those Ken Ham knows how to put asses in the seats of theme parks. I mean, he really you does. You know what? If there, if 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 nothing else, Richard Dawkins and Ken Ham are both great marketers, and it takes Absolutely. one to know, <laughs> right? So, so, so people have this question: like, how involved in God is God in the universe? And and when I'm talking to young Earth creationists, and I say, hey, you know, uh, there there is a there is a biological process of adaptation that gets to all these species and you don't need God to insert his finger. When I tell somebody, sometimes I feel like I'm stealing their last miracle. You know, they're like, no, no, like, like this is, you know, my cat is different than my dog and they're different species. And this is how I know God is real. And I just say, you know, that is a, that is such a shallow, um, uh, apprehension of God. Okay. And, 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 and think of it like this, like, um, did you ever use DOS back in the day, DOS operating system? Oh, yeah. When you had 10 go to whatever, that was like my first computer class. Like, I like just making my, like, Scott is cool, like, go across the screen. That was like my programming acumen. <laughs> well, so, so, so remember DOS and, and, and imagine that in 1981, Bill Gates and Paul Allen and Microsoft introduced DOS. And let's say that in the last, 36 years that no programmer from Redmond, Washington had ever touched it ever again. And let's say that from that, based on inputs from the environment and based on in inherent intrinsic adaptation ability, that it evolved into Windows 3.1, it evolved a Windows desktop, it evolved an Ethernet connection, it evolved a Microsoft Office and antivirus and all of that stuff, and and that today we had Windows 10, and that it developed from the original program. Because and if we had Windows 10 evolved, we would still whether it was evolved that way, everybody would still go back to Windows 9 after they downloaded it. <laughs> yeah, that too. Right? Let, you know, let's say that we got all of this progress, and no no human fingers ever had to touch a keyboard. Let's say that the program itself did it. Okay, well. Would you be impressed with Bill Gates if I, he could make a program that did that? 
Yes, I would be impressed okay. if he could do that. Okay, so if 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 a creator made a universe that could eventually produce life in all of these species, would that be impressive? Or I, would, or, I would, would say yes. If he's got to stick his finger in and add something new every few thousand years. And see, so if, if I could summarize evolution 2.0 in two sentences, it's Darwinists underestimate nature and creationists underestimate God. The Ken Ham version of God is so small. It is, it is shrunken down to fit a seven-year-old in Sunday school and a flannel graph board. And then they pound adults on the head and say, if you don't accept this flannel graph board version of telling this story, then you're compromising your faith. And well, you know, we probably won't say this out loud, but you're probably going to hell. Like, oh, please. The, the, the universe is so much more amazing than that. Life is so much more amazing than that. And the creationists weren't telling the story and neither were the evolutionists. Neither were them. So, so I start I start reading books by Richard Dawkins and Jerry Coyne and and the, the best selling authors who write about evolution, and I eventually figure out that half of what they're telling you is completely wrong. Like it is blatantly wrong. It's demonstrably wrong to the point where there is even no don't no defense for it. Um, and, and, and it was, I was just, give, give was, me, give me three examples of something you would say that if somebody picks up a book by Richard Dawkins today and there, there, it's a popular level kind of, you know, explanation of not of origins and things like that, what, what would they, what would you say is demonstrably wrong? Some of the basic things that are assumptions that are demonstrably wrong. So those guys will tell you that evolution comes from random copying errors of DNA that happen willy-nilly with no connection whatsoever to the possible outcome. That's all a chance process. And then survival of the fittest just selects the good ones, which from time to time, you know, the, the copying error is better. And then every once in a while, there'll be another copying error that's better. And therefore, you have this continuous improvement machine that happens without any guidance, no direction. It's all mindless and purposeless. Well, that is a blatant misrepresentation of the last 50 years of molecular biology. The last 50 years of molecular biology has completely destroyed the concept that any of this is random and accidental. It's not. Okay. When, when, when you have a, um, a strep, well, let's say you have a staph infection or something, and and you're trying uh, you're trying to kill the germs. You take antibiotics. The doctor says, Scott, finish this bottle of antibiotics, um, even if you're already better. Like just finish it off, because if you don't, those germs will mutate and they'll come back worse than they were before, and then we might not even have an antibiotic that can kill them. Now, what's actually going on um, for for anybody anybody in marketing? The germs are split testing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They are trying there. Do you know what a one arm bandit is and like a poker or a, a, a machine, a slot? A slot oh, yeah. oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. Okay. Where it's, you know, it's spinning and there's the, the orange and the apple and the cherries. Okay. What, what, what those germs are doing is they're, they're taking specific genes and they're doing one arm bandit. Like, let's try this. Let's try this. Let's try this. Let's try this. Um, and this is this is going on by the millions. And so what happens is literally in minutes, um, a bacterium can find a piece of code that will enable it to adapt to a situation and pump the poison out of its body or whatever the case may be. And it will incorporate that change. It'll it'll make the change. And then it'll share the code with its other germ friends. It'll divide, divide off new germs that, that resist the antibiotics. And suddenly, your antibiotic doesn't work anymore. And this is an active, proactive process. And it is, it's extremely sophisticated. And what you, you mentioned, so in, in 2002, I wrote an Ethernet book, which as of very recently, is now in its third edition. And it's published by the world's largest professional society of process control engineers. People now, in beaches all across the country this summer are reading the Ethernet book. It's well, <laughs> if, if you have insomnia, 
you buy you can buy my Ethernet book for eighty nine dollars on Amazon, okay? And it will put you to sleep. It's not going to help my downloads, man. I got to I got to stick with the Google advert advert things and the Facebook books, man. But 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 you know, for such an arcane topic, what I discovered um, in, in the process of of being a, a digital networking guy and working in in manufacturing was that all those packets of information that are going back and forth, they're highly, highly, highly structured. And, and, and they're these, you can make a block diagram. It's like, okay, this is the from address and this is the to address and this is where it's going. And this is what, and, and it's, it's, and what I discovered was that DNA is exactly the same. In fact, it was like, Maybe the biggest epiphany I've ever had in my life when I'm I'm reading about the structure of genetic code in detail in one of these scientific papers, and I start to see, oh, wait a minute, I've seen this before. Boom, I've seen this before. This is in my Ethernet book. This is the same. This is digital code. Okay. And so those germs, they're they're exchanging digital code. They might be exchanging them with other cells in your body or other species of germs. And it's like sending emails back and forth. I mean, dude, it's almost exactly the same. And I'm like, wait a minute, this isn't random and accidental. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth. But but wouldn't they say that, wouldn't someone like, let me play, De- I, want, I was a devil's advocate. That makes it sound like Dawkins is the devil. But I, I want to, so, uh, let me play Dawkins advocate. <laughs> but wouldn't he say something like, yes, not, that is not random. That is, that process is, has a very deliberate end to propagate that, that, that member of the species survival, you know? And so through, through sort of, you know, certain kinds of, you're talking over something that's millions and millions and millions of years right. that, 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 a, that a system like this kind of, I mean, he, he would say, he would say in his defense, something like that, right? That he, he would acknowledge that this is a complex system, but that the complexity, um, you know, comes from simplicity and from, you know, these, but then I guess you, along with the intelligent design people would say the burden of proof is maybe on him to show that how, so, how, how complexity it, comes that, from. Okay. So, so let me be super clear that we, we, we see this progression from a single cell 3 billion years ago to all the species on earth and it gets more complex and all of that happens. And I agree that it happens. And, and my book is about how it happens. However, Dawkins is completely wrong, completely wrong about a, a major thing that time and chance alone will not do this. Okay. And millions of people believe that all you need is millions of years and that the, this will just happen. Well, if that were true, Bill Gates would not need employees. If that were true, Microsoft could just buy 10 million web servers, take any piece of code and just start grinding away and eventually out the other end, better and better and better code would come out the other side. That does not work. Technically, it doesn't work because of a concept called information entropy, which I won't really go into. Uh, There is a chapter, there's an appendix in my book about it. Um, Cells know, so remember I said, well, do the engineers know something that the, the, the biologists don't know? That the, do the biologists know something the engineers don't know? Actually, it's neither. The cells know something that none of us know. Cells re-engineer themselves, and they do things that n- no computer program is able to do. And, and so this is really – like there is a very fundamental difference between living things and non-living things. They're built from the same chemicals and, and all that stuff. But living things somehow know how to evolve, and this is not accidental. There is – so it's actually – there's one of two things. Either it's literally an act of God, which I'm fine with, or, or there's a principle – in physics or biology that nobody's discovered yet. And my preference is actually to figure out the principle. My, uh, my suspicion is that there's an entire operating principle within each cell that we currently don't understand, uh, a form of intelligence that's in the cell. That's, but, that's my guess. But do you think, though, would, would somebody like Dawkins or Sam Harris or the late, uh, great Christopher Hitchens, that was my favorite of those guys. I, I always thought Hitchens was so entertaining. But It was very entertaining. I, so you, uh, we were talking about that topology a moment ago, right? So on my extreme there, on the extreme end, one end of the pole, 
you know, if if young if young Earth creationists are on one end, on the other end is the chance alone. Everything's come as a result of chance, right? Would Dawkins say that's would he say something like evolution is seen as a dual process of random chance and non-random processes like selection, elimination, gravity, and self-organization? I mean, he would he would admit that there's some ordered oh, processes that come- well, yes. What 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 he what he would deny is that the, that there's anything intrinsically purposeful going on, and and my my experience as an engineer says it absolutely is purposeful now what 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 all these what all the atheist guys do is they actually talk out of both sides of their mouth so if you read a rich and richard dawkins book it's laden with purposeful language selfish the selfish sure. gene right okay but he's trying to tell you he's trying to tell you that it only appears to be selfish but it's not really selfish but he's trying to have his cake and eat it too. Well, technically, it's not the genes. It's the cells. The cells are selfish, and they really are selfish, and they really are purposeful, and they really are cooperative, and they really do evolve, and they really do do it intentionally, and it's not your imagination. What they want to do is say, well, yeah, I know it all looks purposeful, but it's just not because we know there's no purpose because we know there's no God and we know that, you know, the only purposeful thing is human beings who get to decide what they want to do. And it's kind of like, you know, we're God. And, and, and I'm like, no, you know, mother nature is much more pur- purposeful than you guys ever gave it credit for. And you have blatantly significantly misrepresented uh, let's a Richard Dawkins book pretends that the last 50 years of molecular biology never happened. It is hideously out of date. It, you, you, if you read a Richard Dawkins book, you know less when you finished the book about biology than you did when you started. And it's, it's, a, it's a crime against humanity that the guy gets away with this. But I, but I can prove all this. I mean, I, de- I debate this stuff on my blog. I talk about this in the book. And if people want to debate this, I'll debate them. And, uh, you know, so far, the new atheists, they haven't been real enthusiastic about debating me. Uh, PZ Myers did get on the Unbelievable show and debate me, and I think it did a very nice job. Uh, and you can listen to that. Um, um, but uh, really, they're, they're, they're telling you a version of evolution that is 50 years out of date. I wanted to take a quick break from my conversation with Perry Marshall, which we'll return to in just a moment, to thank a few of you, my sponsors, Leia Paulos, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan Morseberger, and Josh Redder. Thank you all for being my Patreon sponsors. If you want to sponsor this podcast and help keep this content that you enjoy coming out, please just go to patreon.com forward slash scott kent jones and there you can find information about how to give if you give just five bucks a month you will get a shout out on this podcast and help develop some future podcast projects that will be unfolding in the future thanks again to my sponsors and please if you like this podcast consider becoming a patreon sponsor and now back to my conversation with perry marshall yeah, and you kind of talk about you talk about your your Swiss Army knife analogy, right? For yes. evolution, so you've got transposition, horizontal gene transfer, epigenetics, symbo symbiogenesis, and genome duplication and transduction. So these things all together are what you would say. I guess that you I, you would say that. If you got, if you guys were both, if you guys both, you and Dawkins wanted to position yourself in that chance and order, you know, thing that you would mm-hmm. say his order misses some of these things that are pretty important and that actually are some of the more purposeful looking things at mm-hmm. some of the smallest levels of mo- of molecular life we can look at. Yeah, yeah, Dawkins Dawkins really dismisses a lot of that. You know, in fact, a uh, a year ago, he was interviewed and he said, he said, epigenetics is currently enjoying 15 minutes of fame. Well, <laughs> epigenetics is one of the hottest fields in biology. The, the, Google, the number of Google Scholar references on epigenetics have been growing about 30% a year. And it is a huge, it is a treasure trove 
of, of, of insight. I mean, it has major implications for health and disease and treatment of disease and cancer and all kinds of stuff. And, um, you know, it's, it's really unfortunate when somebody as smart as Dawkins and as gifted as Dawkins is so enamored with his own ideas that he's literally 20 years behind the times. Um, and uh, and it's really done a disservice to the public, to textbooks, to all kinds of stuff. Do you, do you and, think this and, is changing? Like, if you look at like um, uh, who's the New York the New York Times journalist Carl Zimmer wrote uh, the Tangled ba- Bank, an introduction to evolution, and he's also written Evolution: The Triumph of Idea, and his most recent one is Evolution: Making Sense of Life. And he, I mean, he talks about the stuff in your in your. Swiss Army knife. I love that analogy. The Swiss Army knife. That's a great analogy. But I mean, it, it, in some of the literature, is that I mean, it seems like it's becoming more present, right? Well, you you can't uh, you can't really get away from it. But but really, there there is a there is a widening gulf that's happening in biology right now, and it's the old school evolution guys versus. Um, the extended synthesis, which incorporates all of this. And so, so I'm oversimplifying a bit, but really it comes down to, to two camps. So one camp is the chance and selection camp. And what they're saying is that, you know, we can explain all of this as ultimately being a product of chance and natural selection, and you don't need anything else. And, what 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 the other camp is saying is you know what we figured out 10 20 30 years ago that that dog don't hunt and that it doesn't explain what cells do because cells actively evolve in real time they actively repair themselves they actively militate against copying errors so like the chance and selection guys say well you know once upon a time there was a replicator and then there were these copying errors and eventually it got to us and and the other camp is saying no the world doesn't work that way and you're you're completely missing something and you know the the unfortunate thing is that is that anytime you declare something is random or something that's chance you're done. It's the end of the line. There is nothing more to be said about it. And so people just stop investigating. I think I think that the the view of evolution that Dawkins and people like that espouse has set science back 25 years. So, and I know that's a big statement, but I, I really think it's true. Yeah, I mean that yeah, I mean that that is that is that is bold, provocative. That's why you write <laughs> books that are interesting and have great titles and subtitles. But I I'm thinking here of your Evolution book. I don't know what the title of the Ethernet book is, but I'm sure that's provocative. Too. Industrial Ethernet, really. <laughs> With like a goth industrial band on the front, like it sounds like a music that we're, we're industrial Ethernet. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that it, that wouldn't they want to say something like that? These processes that that they wouldn't deny that these cells do these things, but that no, they that, that through the mutations and stuff and through a, an evolving process that these capacities, you know, were the fruit of that or something like that. Is that well, what yeah, you have so, to say? So they, they'll tell you that, oh yeah, you know, the transposition evolved from chance and selection and epigenetics evolved from chance and selection. And of course, an organism that can switch its own genes on and off could adapt better than ones that can't. So of course that would emerge. But here's the problem with that. If you put that in a computer simulation, it would never, ever, 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 ever happen. Yeah. I Again, think- this goes this goes back to what so why does Bill Gates need employees? And I'm saying you guys are missing you guys are missing the biggest secret in biology. It's staring you in the face and you've been denying for literally 70 years, because that's how long this view has been around. You you've been denying that it even exists. It is staring you in the face, and 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 when somebody figures that out, all of science is going. Science will never be the same. In fact, this is why I put together Technology Prize because I reckon like somebody's got to figure this out. Okay, yeah. So so yeah, I think that. Do you, would you say that that would have you ever read uh, Hume's Dialogues on Natural Religion, David Hume? Um, I've, I'm familiar with it. Um, I haven't read it all, but I, I, I could probably track. Hume basically, you know, he's, it's a great writer. I mean, he's got this dialogue between these three friends and, you know, he's the, I mean, 
I, I'm, I'm assuming Philo is sort of Hume personified. But then, yeah, I've interviewed a bunch of novelists lately, and I always assume that, like, the characters are composites of themselves in some ways, and that's because that's I'm not a novelist. So, <laughs> but, but anyway, yeah. you know, so I think, like, a person that doesn't write novels. But, I mean, it seems like it's most in Hume's voice. And then he's he's got sort of a conservative Presbyterian who's, you know, fideist by faith alone. And he's got this kind of enlightenment sort of theist deist slash figure and yeah. and he talks about and one of the they they make the watchmakers argument right the basic design like which you're kind of it's interesting because i think that what is interesting with people like a background like yourself is that it's a much more fine-tuned argument than that because as you say you know you can just see someone's worked with code dna like there's just a similarity intuitively for someone in engineering but his his problem Hume's problem or Philo's with the with the deist theist um machine kind of argument is that the universe he thinks it's a weak argument because the world doesn't really resemble a machine all that well that the analogy between a universe and a machine doesn't work because it's it's an analogy between two separately existing entities between the universe as a whole and certain parts of the universe i.e man and and the kind of the objects he manipulates so yep. drawing an analogy between a machine and the universe might be like trying to figure out how an entire person develops by looking at a single hair in 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 their head and he also seems seems that he also thinks it's it's a weak argument to say that the world is the result of intelligence because the process responsible for the intricate order and adaptability in the case of organic bodies seems to be animal and and vegetative reproduction not design so so he kind of has he so he sort of takes all these shots at the argument which is a very intuitive argument i mean i think when you say to people if you find a watch or if you look at machine code i mean you would but then when you when you stop and think about it a little bit are are there i mean what 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 have been the best criticisms of your work in those dialogues well so so um so so Hume was tackling Paley's watch argument, right? So right, Paley right. said, you, get, you walk in the woods, you find a watch, you know it's designed because of all these mechanisms. So therefore, look at the stuff in nature, that's also designed. And, and, and Hume basically said, well, that's a poor analogy for all these different reasons. Well, um, so I attacked this from a informatics perspective. I attacked it from a communication engineer perspective. And I said, well, the pattern in DNA is a digital code. All of the other codes that we know the origin of are designed, and we don't know any codes that are not designed. Like nobody's ever found one. Now there's, so, so that actually gives you five possible answers. Um, humans design DNA, aliens design DNA, DNA occurred randomly and spontaneously, like it just popped out somehow. Um, God designed DNA or there's an undiscovered law of physics. Now I have to be really clear that, that when you say DNA is a code, that's, it's not analogous to code. It is a code by correct formal definitions. It is a code. Um, and, and, and I, I have a $3 million technology prize that's, that's all based on that. And I've gotten submissions for the prize and it's been out for a couple of years and there's been a lot of debate about it and you can go look at it. And so from yeah, that they, they have to, what do they have to do? They have to show you a code that is randomly generated or something and then patentable or something. What is it? Okay. So we'll, we'll write you a check for a hundred thousand dollars just for discovering a, a a code that emerges from chemicals without anybody having to cheat. So if you can do it, we'll write you a check for $100,000. If if we can patent it, we'll pay for the patent. And when the patent's granted, we'll write you a check for $3 million because we would love to own that technology. Um, currently is not known to exist. Gosh, what so, am I doing with my time? I should be working on this. Well, hey, <laughs> and, and you know, and, 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 um, I, I I think if if somebody can discover this, I think it'll be one of the at, at least one of the ten top discoveries of the 21st century. I mean, it'd be absolutely huge, and it might it might enable bigger a world than Instagram. Bigger than yes, absolutely okay. be okay. bigger than. Okay. I think it'd be bigger bigger than than Google. So it's it's so it's not an analogy, but but see, here's the twist. The twist is is that cells have the ability to assign meanings to codes. Cells have the ability to create new codes that didn't exist before. And and so, so the Paley watch argument actually 
doesn't go far enough. So paleo, so it's like, well, you didn't just find a watch in the woods. You found a miniature watch factory that makes watch factories. Okay. That's what you actually found. And then if you found a universe in which the watch factory that made watch factories exist, apparently we have a universe that can make watch factories. And, and this is a, see, this is a technological engineering problem. Any theory of evolution, whatever the theory is, any theory of evolution is a theory of engineering. And I am coming to this debate and I'm saying, okay, if you have a correct theory of engineering, we will get better engineering out of it. And Bill Gates will be able to make Windows software without employees. And maybe everybody can have their own, you know, software um, you know, incubator in their own house. OK, but you're not going to get that from old school Darwinism. Um, and so th this is why I think it's a completely failed theory. And this is why the criticisms don't go away. I mean, it's only the most troubled theory in the history of science, despite the fact that I think there's tremendous evidence that that the evolution has happened. And it's because the, the people writing all the textbooks are, are giving you a theory that's been known to be wrong for 70 years. But don't in general scientists like overturning theories because that's how you become famous like i mean like it, it, like if it if it was if it like was not uh a paradigm i mean there's always ideological blinders right in any discipline and yep. you, you've taught you talk about how outsiders you know whether it's google or mcdonald's or bill gates you know with bill gates with yep. microsoft or uh, bezos with amazon they're off it's often m it's often outsiders um that but also in traditions it's usually people that master traditions that become innovators too like picasso doesn't start anti-real stuff he kind of masters realism and moves on and, and kind of so i mean how is it is it that i mean what why why do you think that the criticisms you're bringing up aren't more widespread or, or maybe they are becoming more so. Um, or is it that even things like epigenetics, the things that in your, in your, in your Swiss army knife, the things that you think t show more on the ground, faster moving, evolving and, and adaptation and things like that. Do you think that it's not so much that that's denied? It's just not given, given the sort of prime real estate in, evolutionary biology that actually would change the way the conversation happens? Well, what's nowadays, mostly these things just aren't, aren't given their proper priority. Okay. But, but they are acknowledged. I mean, they're kind of everywhere. And in fact, like in the health and fitness space, I get a lot of interviews from health and fitness guys because epigenetics and stuff like that is, is very well known. If you're, if you're like a nutrition geek, like you know about epigenetics. Okay. In fact, what you eat can change your epigenetics this afternoon. Okay. So, so, th so, so this, you know, you can't really argue about this, but if you go back, you know, Barbara McClintock in, in the 1940s, she discovered that corn plants were rearranging their own DNA under stress and evolving in real time. And her colleagues thought it was ridiculous. They're like, like, woman, are you on drugs? Like, what is your problem? And, um, and the, the way a lot of these people were treated was just horrible. And, um, you know, uh, you know, I love scientists and I love science, but, but, but I got to tell you, you know, th there's a real good old boys club that has grown up around Darwinian evolution and they are hogging the football and they are not giving it up. And, and what, what has been happening? I was at a conference, um, six months ago. Ab, uh, about eight months ago is absolutely fascinating. Um, it was called New Trends in Evolutionary Biology. It was at the Royal Society, which is the oldest scientific body in the world. It was in London. And it was the first time that the extended synthesis views got full hearing on a world stage. And um, it was a historical event. I mean, I felt like Forrest Gump being there. Um, and you know, a bunch of scientists whose work has been largely ignored for a long time, you know, got to speak their piece. And, and, uh, you know, you mentioned Carl Zimmer, Carl Zimmer was there. Um, and, and, uh, you know, th it was really remarkable to see how poor the defense was for the old view. There really is no defense for the old view. Um, I, th I think quite honestly, I think it's just laziness. 
I, I think I think when you can get millions of people to just buy into a story that is all chance and selection, it prevents you from actually having to do any real work because you get to take evolution for granted. And so people have trying to been have been trying to overturn neo Darwinism for a very long time. Um, and that, but you also have to, you have to account for the religious factor. Okay, and so. The, the ultimate questions of where this all came from, the elephant is always in the room. It right. doesn't matter right. where you are, what right. you do. And so that, and, 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 and that's on I both think, sides, right? That's, I mean, that's for yes. religious people. It's for the skeptic. Cause I mean, yes. I, I, you know, I've, I've taught at uh, an evangelical Bible college uh, or in this area in Philadelphia. And you know, some of these kids who are young earth creationists, I was like, most days you trust science more than your Bible. Like you don't get, you don't go waiting, yes. waiting in line at the iPhone uh, for your new iPhone going electronics from the people that study electrons. It's only on this one thing, carbon dating. And all of a, all, all of a sudden you're an expert, you know, like all of a sudden you I mean, like, yeah, I'm like, you're not Amish. You're not fundamentally skeptic, skeptical to this stuff. Like, you're, you're so, yeah. I mean, I think, uh, and for and for scientists too, right? Like, probably resistance to purpose language or anything like that seems like a, a kind of okay. If we if we use these kinds of of words, it kind of it it, it evinces some sort of God design theism that we want to back right. off of. Right, right. And so, and and I got to tell you, it's been drilled every every biologist. When you go to school, it gets drilled into your head. This is random. This is purposeless. This is not intentional. And uh, this is just chemistry. This is just biochemistry. This is drilled in your head from your first day as a freshman. And um, there's one scientist at the Royal Society meeting that I was talking to. Um, he got his bachelor's degree in English um, before he went on to study genetics. And and he has always advocated a, a different views his entire career, much more in line with what I'm talking about. And I asked him one time, I said, I said, do, does your do your different views have anything to do with the fact that you went and got an English degree before you studied genetics? And he said, absolutely, yes. He says they did not get a chance to tell me what I was not allowed to think. Okay, so anthropomorphic language has been taboo in biological literature. Teleological languages have has been taboo in biological literature. But there's always been a minority of biologists that are like, wait a second. So Carl Woese was one of those people and Lynn Margulis was one of those people. And there's some really like, I mean, friggin' distinguished scholars who completely disagreed with the mainstream on this. And in you, uh, Carl Wadding, uh, Waddington, a famous guy back in the 50s, he wrote a book called Strategy, Strategy of the Genes, or Erwin Schrodinger, the famous physicist 70 years ago, he wrote a book called What is Life? And he says life contains something called neg entropy negative entropy. Life reverses entropy. My Evolution 2.0 prize is a search for the source of negative entropy. What is it? If we figure this out, humanity and technology will completely change. Yeah, do you think it's interesting? I often think, you know, somebody like Aristotle just thought, well, if the universe looks like it's got purpose, it must. I mean, for him, I think the Greek word there's dokes or whatever. If your dokes are like, if your theory or your framework, it, yes. if, you're, if it, it doesn't fit dokes, it doesn't fit basically that how things seem that must be, there must be something wrong with it. I wonder, like, we know so much more about the universe than Aristotle did. And yet we feel a lot less at home in it, I think, in, the, in that you, you I, do, do you think there's something about the cutting off of purpose language, the kind of being censorious with that, that leaves us not, that leaves us feeling more alienated in the world. Yes. Yes. Um, and, uh, in fact, see, um, biology, biology and scientific literature has been purged of teleological language. And as a writer, I'm really sensitive to this because, um, because if if you want to write a good sentence, good sentence, lots of people came and bought lemonade from the lemonade stand. Bad sentence. Much lemonade was purchased at the lemonade stand. Right. It's a, a passive sentence, okay? Scientists are trained to write in passive sentences, okay? Um, there's and passive sentences obscure cause and effect. There's all kinds of scientific papers where because they use passive sentences, you're never really quite sure what caused something to happen. Somebody says, somebody says, um, um, 
immunity to viruses evolved over millions of years. And it sounds like they told you something and they didn't really tell you anything because they're just speaking in passive sentences. They're not connecting the dots. Okay. So, so, um, and, and, and so, so, so this passive writing is disconnected. So you make it a law. It, it just, it dumbs down the whole entire profession. And and it's it's really sad if if you insisted. Okay, here's another thing that passive sentences do: is they mask ignorance. Okay, like four hundred and thirty-five dollars disappeared from the cash register. That's not nearly as useful as Billy stole four hundred and thirty-five dollars from the cash register. Okay, you you can cover up all kinds of cause and effect by writing that way, and so this has become normal in the literature. It's dehumanizing. And I guess they would also um, say this is they're trying to be epistemically humble, right? Like we want it, we don't we want to describe, yeah. not prescribe. But yeah. but but you're saying it's overdone. Like it's a little it, yeah, it becomes totally, it becomes a new form of prescription, maybe. Right. It's totally overdone, right? And and um and uh it 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 even it even prevents people from thinking in terms of clear cause and effect. You know, writing and thinking are almost the same thing. Like uh when when you're forced to write and you're forced to write in active sentences and you're forced to connect cause and effect, you start asking questions that people aren't asking. So yeah, um, I, I think, you know, there's, there's a whole culture that's grown up around us and it's trying to avoid, it's trying to avoid teleological thinking. It's trying to avoid purposeful language. It's trying to avoid the elephant in the room. The truth is we don't know we don't know where the universe came from. We don't know where life came from. Origin of life is the hardest problem currently in science that I know of. And so just admit that you don't know. And so there's all these little stories that have grown up and um, and it, it's just a thicket. Like I, anybody that wades into this topic, you have my sympathy because, I mean, it's just – it is so daunting. And what I hope that I've done with Evolution 2.0 is made it a lot easier for people to understand, like, what's really going on here? Like, you don't have to take my word for it. But I, I did provide 350 scholarly references and lots of books and things that you can go recommended reading. And, like, I really think this is a worthwhile topic. Yeah, it's a well-researched book, Emmy, And you do your footnotes. And, and, and you're a good writer. And But I do think, yeah, that part of the value of the book is you give people the tools to do the research. You know, I mean, I, I feel like you demystify in the book some things that can be intimidating for people um, and give yeah. them like, hey, look, you can actually read this. If you're a little bit educated, you can actually wait. It's, you know, I know it's intimidating at first, but you, you learn your way around it like anything. It's actually not uh, sort of you're kind of uh, taking the cookies a little off off the cookie jar, uh, off the, the cookie jar off the sh top shelf and say, look, this is manageable. Yes. It is. It is manageable. And, and you can. And look. You need to ask common sense questions. I, I think one thing that really happens very quickly in these debates is somebody shows up and tries to intimidate everybody. And it works. A lot of times it works. And and I went in and thought, like, I just refuse to be intimidated by anybody. Um, if they don't know, I'm going to press them until they admit that they don't know. Um, one, one, of, one of the, like, kind of signature moments in this whole process was I, I was listening to an NPR show and Richard Dawkins was being interviewed and people were calling in on the telephone and somebody asked him about the origin of life. And he goes, well, it was a happy chemical accident. And I'm like, what? Like, you didn't just say that. Like, we're supposed to listen. We're supposed to take you seriously. You're the professor, professor of the public understanding of science at Oxford University. You just told me that the most amazing machinery in the universe is a happy chemical accident. Like, I'm supposed to think that's science? Dude, that's not science. That's total abdication. Like, that's an insult to every curious person in the world that you would even say something like that. And I, I was like, man, something is seriously wrong in this field if people are getting away with saying stuff like and it, it wasn't it wasn't the fact that I'm a Christian that offended me. It was the fact that I'm an engineer. It's like don't you you don't you you don't use your credentials and your platform and your university to say stuff like that. Uh, nobody should be allowed to say stuff like that. And and we need we need to be curious. Like what a curiosity killer. Like there's people there's people walking around they're happy they're happy with that kind of an answer. You shouldn't you should never be happy with that kind of an answer. Life is so much more colorful 
when you're allowed to ask questions and when you're allowed for there to not be any nice, nifty, neat little answers and, uh, and where you can chip away at those questions and, you know, how about a little mystery? Yeah. Of the, of the people, just a couple quick final questions of the people that you, first off, I would guess that your critics would say, cause you want to say that, Hey, look, I'm not an intelligent design guy. Actually. I mean, you're, you're not totally uh, unfriendly to the movement, but you also have some criticisms of it. You think it can be a conversation stopper. And you say, basically yeah. we need to stay away from things that would get lose scientists jobs kind of things. Like if yeah. it would eliminate, like with the kind of God of the gap stuff. So yeah. Uh, yeah, I think my guess is your critics would say, well, this is kind of more design 2.0 than Darwinism 2.0. Is that, I mean, have you heard that kind of criticism? Uh, well, yeah. And you know, there's a lot of intelligent design guys that say, I don't understand intelligent design. Well, I tell you what, if you think I don't understand intelligent design, go to perrymarshall.com slash infidels and read the arguments that I was making from 2005 to 2012 when I was battling on the world's largest atheist discussion board. Um, and I was, I was advocating a design argument for DNA. Um, and that was before I put together the prize idea and I started to become more open to the idea like, well, maybe there is a natural process and we just haven't found it. And, um, and I think, I, I think I, I understand, um, I understand intelligent design very well, but, but the problem, the problem with intelligent design like capital I, capital D, Discovery Institute and all that is that they, it's, it's actually a very big um, – it's a big camp with a lot of yeah, people, yeah. with a lot of different views. And, and, and the predominant view in the intelligent design camp is actually anti-evolution. And I think that's a huge mistake. I think evolution, if, if you're looking for a reason to believe in God, the idea that God could make a universe that could produce evolution is the most impressive view of God. It's far more impressive than, hey, we need another species, so let's stick that in there. Hey, we need another species, let's stick that in there. Um, and... Um, and, 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 and so like, I, I just, I don't like the way they frame the argument. And I think the way that they're approaching this problem is really doomed. Like, I don't think they'll ever get acceptance. What, what I can say is because I approach this as an open question, because I don't force God down anybody's throat, but because I'm rigorous about the science, I have a growing group of scientists who like what I'm doing, endorse my work. Like, I know you're like, talking people like, that aren't religious. You've got scientists. Yeah, that, they're, that are, not they're not yeah. religious. You know, like De Dennis Noble of Oxford University. He's, I mean, he doesn't have a religious dog in this hunt. And he's one of the top hundred scientists in the UK. He, he wrote a beautiful endorsement of evolution 2.0. Why? Because I pursue the science as a scientific question. And, and, and I, I, I think it's very presumptive to say, oh, well, Science can never figure that out, so God must have done it. I look, I I love God and and everything as much as 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 any Christian, but but I just unless that Christian's like Mother Teresa, maybe you don't love him as much as her. But <laughs> uh, maybe not. You know, God rest her soul. But, but, but I kind of I bristle at that kind of argumentation because because it pits theology against science and and I, I don't think it's necessary I I think if you frame the question a little bit different way suddenly science and religion are not in a war with each other at all and if we can get people to lay down their weapons and create a demilitarized zone and, th and th that's really that's I think I think that's why I'm getting traction with the scientific community is it, it is a DMZ everybody knows I'm a Christian it's Everybody knows, no secret, but I'm not ramming anybody down anything in anybody's throat. I, I'm, I'm holding open a question. I'm saying, hey, maybe 500 years from now, this will still be the biggest unsolved problem in science, and maybe God really did it, or maybe it's solvable. But if we don't know, I'm not going to proclaim that we know. Do you worry about the anti-scientific sort of attitude that most, that, that not well, certainly a lot of evangelical Christians have. I mean, I, you think of issues like, climate change and other things that there's just a yeah. kind of politicized yes. cultural uh, animus yes towards science it's, it's a it's a huge it's a huge problem and 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 look you know you know what it does is is 
not only does it create a lot of bad blood and a lot of bad conversations and negativity, here's what also it does. It takes the brightest 10% of Christians and peels them off and makes them into agnostics or atheists. And like there's all kinds of pastors and people, they won't touch this stuff with a 10-foot pole because they're afraid of the controversy. Also, they're afraid they're afraid of here's here's another thing. They're afraid of young earth creationists who will throw a bloody fit and they will split the church. They had the so they, theme, they had the uh, theme parks. Yeah. Well, <laughs> th- this goes on. And so pa- pastors are afraid to talk about this. Uh, youth pastors and stuff like that. I'm like, dude, you know, bring me into your youth group and, and I'll blow their minds and I will inoculate them from this small minded view of the universe. Um, and this, the world we live in is so wonderful and so amazing. Most people haven't even heard 10% of it or even 1% of it. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Have you always had a temperament like for controversy? I mean, you seem like you don't mind controversy. Like you kind of like you don't. And I mean, I mean you're not a, a, a gladiatorial kind of person or personality, at least not in mine, actually. But but you don't mind m- being in the center of controversy. Has that been a, a, a lifelong story um, for you? Not, or is it more along quite, just this no. issue? I've always I've always been willing to take a stand on something I believe in. But I, I have to tell you, when when I got in 2005, I got drug into um, this debate on infidels largest. And I was like, oh, God, no. Like, oh, I don't oh, I don't want to deal with this. I really don't. But it's like, Perry, come on, be honest with yourself. Like, you, you did you think this wasn't coming? <laughs> and I, I just had to get used to it. It was like, um, you know, and all of a sudden, I mean, I had this really wonderful reputation online with my Google AdWords stuff and everybody likes Perry. And then I'll, I got these thousands of people and they're, they're just like just hating me. And I'm like, I, I just finally got used to it. Uh, and, and I, you know what I believe? I, I believe that if you're doing something in the world and you're not pissing something off, somebody off somewhere, like you might, mu- you must not be very effective. Um, like if, you know, Dan Kennedy says, if you haven't pissed off one person by noon every day, you're probably not making much of a difference. <laughs> I think it's true. I really do. And, and there, there's a U2 song. It says something like, um, choose your enemies carefully because in some ways they'll mind you and they may even define you. And and at the end, when your story ends, uh, they will last longer than your friends. And um, you know what? Figure out what you're against and what what you're for, and and be for the good thing and be against the bad thing, and 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 fight the battle. I, I and look, that's what every epic movie is about. It's what every epic novel is about, and I think it's it's what you got to do if if you're going to be a real man or a real woman in 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 the big world out there. Perry, this is a great conversation. I, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast, and I really. Uh... I, I want to commend your book. I mean, I think it's uh, whatever your thoughts on the topic. This is wor- well worth engaging, readable, and, and a fun read. Well, well, thank you, and th- I want to commend you for um, really thinking about the questions. Like this was not just your usual, "Hey, I got Perry's list of questions, and I can mindlessly ping it." You really thought about this, and and you, uh, there's a lot of depth in this conversation. So I want to commend you. It's it's a real pleasure to have that conversation. Thanks, and we'll have you back on. I appreciate it. Thank you, Scott. Take care. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. And do check out Perry's book, Evolution 2.0. It's interesting, great read, very provocative, fresh, and insightful. Thanks again for listening to Give and Take. And until next time, fare thee well.